great sense of uh, honor and privilege to come together in this way and have a dedicated space for the practice. Um, We're very fortunate to be able to take the time out of our lives to do this, to contemplate the Dharma and cultivate the Dharma. It uh, can uh, be a real refuge for us. One of the uh, things that a teacher that had a great influence in in my life when I I met Ajahn Chah, first of all in the UK and then in Thailand, um, one of the things that he used to say was this practice is preparation. Preparation for when the passions touch the heart. And there's a moment, do we react and generate more suffering and complexity, either for ourselves or in the world around us, or can we pause and reflect and apply this training, moments of gathering, moments of mindfulness, moments of wise reflection. And we practice in these containers, that we have built together this container of the retreat and the retreat place so that we can have the quiet and the support to reflect inwardly and practice with just the simplicity of being with the day, how that unfolds. And very simple things, feeling tired or feeling a bit dislocated, wanting to be here, not wanting to be here, feeling happy, not so happy, all the different kinds of change of moods, to, to see them come and go and to be able to, to apply this, these, this training of moments of being with the breath, being with the body, being with the reality of the moment and not being so distracted, uh, not mo- moving out of our habits or particularly if it's not comfortable we just shift. And this is a training to be able to withstand impingement from the world around us and from our own internal psychodynamic material, whatever arises, to withstand that without defaulting to patterns of distraction and building, and through that, building some capacity to be more fully here. So when uh, we arrived yesterday into IMS, Kitty Sarah and I, we came from Tennessee, we traveled from Atlanta and uh, flew to uh, Boston and then was driven here. Uh, when we uh, woke up this morning, I don't know when it was, but there was a note on the notice board and said uh, uh, someone hoped that during this retreat uh, that we would reflect on or, or give some perspective on practice and climate change. So um, this is um, probably one of the biggest issues that we're in the midst of. Uh, Very compelling, very impactful, um, very serious, very threatening, um, very alarming. And so we practice to be with the reality of, of life, not to live in some kind of uh, cloud that we float off on, but to actually be more able to be here and meet meet the moment, meet whatever arises, 
within ourselves and in the world around us. We're not separate, separating out from the world in this practice, but we're learning to have capacity so we can meet the world. So rather than when we uh, think of something like, uh, or we, we read more and more, we see more and more, we experience more and more what's happening in our earth, it can be very activating for us. bring up a lot of very strong feelings and reactions uh, and can activate deeper, very deeper and sometimes quite primitive and early patterning to do with uh, fear and overwhelm and and that in a way can really uh, dislocate us from a sense of deeper sanity and well-being so a bit very, uh, very um, powerful things that hit, like Ajahn Charles said, when things hit that are very strong, they activate us. But we are here to practice to learn that there are alternative ways of responding, that there are alternative resources within this heart and mind that we can draw from, that can resource us, that can support us in the face of whatever we might face both personally and collectively. One of the things that uh, was said by Einstein is that we can't solve a problem from the same consciousness that created it. There has to be a shift somehow when we approach uh, things in life, difficult things, and we're approaching it from the same mindset, we tend to just go round and round and round. And sometimes it's these shifts that can happen that bring about a shift in response that can change the whole picture and allow for something quantum-like to happen, some kind of shift to happen, perhaps that we didn't even know was possible because we've shifted our mindset. Our usual conditioned mindset uh, has been very much, our human consciousness has been very conditioned by this this mind that uh, objectifies, that goes out, this thinking mind. It's called Mano Vijnana, the Buddhist map of the mind. Mano Vijnana, the mind, that the Vijnana, the consciousness that goes out to name things. It's a very important aspect of our consciousness, of our awareness, of our mind. It helps us to, 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 to differentiate and to name and to know and to be able to... Um, discern difference but it tends to actually become a way of that we become addictively filtering our experience of life just through this primary capacity to objectify the world and to create in the process of doing that that's this sense of separation for me and the other whatever that other is and when there's that separateness even at a subtle level or not so subtle level then there's a whole dynamic between me and the other. Liking, disliking, wanting, not wanting, fear, lust. It's quite complex within that field between me and the other. This is uh, the, the mind that's constantly creating an object. And then when we create the objects of, say, the earth and others around us, we can sometimes in that process lose the reality the deeper reality of the uh, of awareness, this deeper dimension of the mind, heart, that which is aware, 
which is actually sensitive to and knows the reality of interconnection, that there is no ultimate other, we're part of each other. The breath that I take in is the carbon dioxide the trees give out, and so on. The oxygen that the trees give out allows me to breathe, and so the food I take is from the earth. This is every day, is an affirmation of actually we're not apart from what we experience or see or name or experience through our senses as other than us, different than us, that we're actually part of a a whole unified web of life. This is the Dharma, to really know that, not just intellectually, maybe we start there, but to really begin to feel that and ultimately to move from that reality. So to, to shift, this practice is helping us shift, not to judge how we are or to put down, but just to notice there's another dimension that we can awaken to. We're awakening out of the obsessive, objectifying mind that generates this feeling of separative consciousness that's, gen- that's connected with brilliance and creativity, but is also connected with suffering and discontent. We're awakening into a deeper dimension. This practice is helping us to awaken into the reality of the seamlessness of the whole. This is a, a quantum shift in a way. So in this practice, when, we, when, we, when we're meeting whatever it is, whatever intensity, whether it's this very big picture that we're now in the midst of and will be for the rest of our lives, of the changes happening due to the extreme release of carbon into the atmosphere and the effects of that, you know, or whether it's in our personal life in smaller ways, but whenever we meet intensity or difficulty or challenge, and this practice does have a lot uh, to offer. So I'd like to just talk into these, these connected with what we've been doing today, perhaps three ways of thinking about what this practice can offer us. It can offer us a whole range of skills and benefits. But just to, to look at them, first, the first dimension of refuge, the second dimension of resilience, and the third dimension of response. That as we start to um, practice, we become familiar, and we're encouraged to have a sense for the refuge, a refuge, a place a way of abiding that is sustaining, that is nourishing, that can reorientate us. And this is the entry into the Buddhist path begins with a sense of orientation around refuge. Classically, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And maybe initially that seems like some formula that we do that doesn't really have much immediate resonance for us. But as we start to deepen the practice that these three dimensions are actually dimensions of our own being. They are, first of all, external to us, maybe. The Buddha as a historical, uh, brilliant teacher that uh, had insight into uh, 
a very radical awakening understanding which we are still contemplating now, two and a half thousand years later, who went on to teach for 40 years and challenged the status quo of his time as a radical teacher, a revolutionary teacher, sort of like split the atom of consciousness, awakened, and resonates out still to this time and this day. We can think of the Buddha in a historical way or the, an archetypal way, or we can think of the Buddha uh, as an archetype or a teacher, those that inspire us as teachers, those beings that inspire us. Uh, when I think of, say, we've been um, living many years and working in South Africa, I think of someone like Mr. Mandela and his life, it inspires us, it inspired a whole country. I think of my grandmother, <laughs> who was very, very sweet and had all the time in the world. If I'd gone home and said, uh, Nan, I've just murdered someone, she'd say, well, never mind, dear, have a cup of tea and we'll talk about it. Whatever it was, whatever you brought to her doorstep was workable. You know, someone that inspires us. These are the beings that we can think about. It's not okay, she wasn't a Buddha, maybe, but she was a Bodhisattva, someone that had compassion, that had love, that had kindness. I think of my dog, our dog, that came to us and lived with us for 15 years when we went through quite a lot of difficulty establishing our small hermitage on the border of Lesotho. His name was Jack, and the local Zulus used to call him Numzan, which means the man, because <laughs> he was such a presence, he really was the man. And uh, he, he, the retreatants would come and they'd have all sorts of stress and difficulties and he'd just go around and, and be loving, very, very loving. And then when we'd practice, he'd come and sit on his zafu and when the chants would come, especially Kuan Yin chants, he'd throw himself on his back and his legs would go up in the air and everyone would laugh. If he didn't like the Dharma talk, he'd just get up and shake his, his little thing around his neck and walk out. And so he was a very good teacher. <laughs> you know, so we can think of beings, whatever forms they come in, that inspire us. These are, these are the, the energy that keeps us going, maybe. Or the Dharma, this Dharma is teachings, these classically the teachings that are profound teachings, brilliant teachings, well-worn and used and practiced teachings over generations and generations that we can reflect on, a teaching like you know, the samadhi, practice, returning to the breath and the body. I wouldn't have known how to do that if someone hadn't taught me. And they could teach me because they'd heard it. So this whole lineage of Dharma teachings that, are, that can inspire us, and, and more immediately the Dharma, everything, there's nothing apart from the Dharma nature. Everything is expressing itself according to dharma. So everything is teaching us. The trees, the, the moods of the heart, the different peoples, the different unfoldings in the world. It's all something we can contemplate and be with. And we can, in the sangha, we can, this, the inner meaning of sangha is we can practice. We're not just a leaf in the wind. Whatever it is, we can uh, practice. We can apply mindfulness, we can wisely reflect, we can discern, we can respond rather than react. So this refuge, this is uh, to know that in any moment, this is a present moment practice, to align again and again with this inner refuge. 
and we practice it and then in moments when life uh, hits in a big way or things happen, then we know how to return. We have a refuge. It's in an inner refuge, not dependent on the circumstances around us. Also, the Buddha taught the refuge of ethics, to know to how to align ourselves. as last night when we reflected before going into retreat on the five great gifts, Buddha called the, the five precepts, the great gifts that offer freedom of, from oppression, freedom from fear, internally and externally. This ethical base that's not dependent on external social or religious morals. In fact, often social and religious so-called morals are in direct conflict with an internal ethic. And when that conflict arises and there's some manipulation of, of, uh, of behavior, then if we don't have an internal ethic, we can find ourselves getting caught up in, in unwholesome actions. And the karma from that can be very... Uh, very uh, difficult. So to to have this inner compass is what the Buddha called the 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 two the conscience that which can feel and is sensitive to when we when we move out of alignment with harmony with the Dharma when we do or say something that was perhaps not that skillful and we can just feel that there's a sensation if that didn't really go very well. And so we, we feel that and realign ourselves from that information without creating the sense of me as a guilty or bad person. It's, it's just, uh, it's much more dispassionate than that. It's just, it, that wasn't very skillful. That, that speech was hurtful or that action was colored and tainted and manipulative in some way or another. And so I feel that and that informs informs me to be more careful or the the otopa to have the sense of being very um, fear, a a wholesome fear. If the mind suddenly gets activated into violence and you feel like you want to do something really outrageously, (laughs) you're filled with hatred or something and you want to act out of that, then something you know, the conscience is working and purified, something will arise like an inner, internal red light say, that's not good, that's damaging, it's going to damage you, damage someone else, just restrain, hold back, wait, be patient. So this is the, the Buddha said, these are the guardians of the world, these inner capacities for conscience, this is our internal ethic, and this becomes an internal compass for us, something we can rely on is very important in our world. When there's so many influences, so many ways that human consciousness is hijacked and um, distorted and pushed, can be pushed into unwholesome actions of body, speech and mind. When um, someone like Aung San Suu Kyi was, uh, as you know, was um, stood really for uh, freedom in Burma when she was under house arrest for many years, I think 21 years or something. Uh, One of the things she said that however much the state machinery oppresses, that courage arises 
again and again, it can never destroy this inner courage, this inner strength. Because this is the nature of the deepest heart. This is our deeper nature that has courage, is fearless. Yes, we can feel fear, we can feel the loss of courage, but we can return and know our refuge and know that there is capacity. And it's been demonstrated by many, many different uh, inspiring people through, through time and through within, uh, within facing all sorts of different difficulties within the society. This practice of resilience is part of what we've been doing today to learn in a very, very simple way to gather, to know that when uh, when there is this capacity for samadhi, for gathering, there is a strengthening. That then when there is, from the very simple activity of moments of awareness, moments of mindfulness, moments of just being with one breath at a time, that gradually there is this unification that starts to happen. The gathering of the, the body starts to be illuminated with the energy of the mind as the mind, the mental energy that's so fickle starts to steady on the slow rhythm of the body. So the mind starts to calm, the body starts to illuminate and, be, and digest some of the stress that it carries some of the undigested emotional material that is that it's carried at the felt sense level, starts to the samadhi, this gathering, starts to digest that and clears out the, our, our bodily experience energetically. And then the mind begins this mental faculty that's untrained, that just gets very colored by whatever state it, it, we experience, begins to steady and calm on the rhythm of the body. And then... This is a unification, a steadiness. It's very, very pleasant. It's very, very pleasing. As this is developed, it becomes an abiding that we can, we can cultivate and that we can return to. This, um, this inner steadiness, this singleness of focus in the moment. And so this is a great skill to be able to practice little by little, and it's uh, plant the seeds for this so that when whatever ever uh, arises in the field of our experience, whatever it is, when it hits the mind, in that moment hits the heart, touches the body, we feel, as sensitive, we can feel the affect of that. But then there's a moment of, do we react, do we act out of our activation and our patterning, or can we digest, can we pause, can we take a breath Maybe even one moment of taking a mindful breath may be the difference between creating a heaven and hell in that moment. So one great uh, Thai meditation master, Ajahn Tate, said that um, this practice is, is to discern the difference between mind and the activity of mind. It's to discern between the jitta the awareness, the fundamental nature of mind is aware. It has buddhi, it has this knowing quality. It's untainted, it's, uh, it's uh, luminous, reflective, discerning, clear. To know the difference between this 
undifferentiated awareness, this presence, and the activity, the mental activity, the, the movement of what's coming and going, to know the difference, to discern, and to be able to awaken into and recognize and touch through the simple practice of returning one breath at a time to touch that which is unmoving, that which is aware, just present as a refuge, as a reference, as a point of well-being in the midst of whatever is happening. When we think of something like uh, climate change, we're in that reality now, then all it, can a- it activates, it, doesn't, it can, it does, it activates so many strong, destabilizing feelings, dread and fear and outrage, denial, disassociation, anxiety, all of these affects. And if we don't know the difference between that which is, can know what is arising but not be overwhelmed by what is arising, if we don't know this refuge, this place of returning, this practice, we don't have this practice, then we can just completely freak out and lose any capacity to respond uh, from a place of uh, clarity. So we're living at a time, we've always lived at, there's always, the world's always been unstable. But whatever we've understood as stable, that is really in question. <laughs> that is something we can't rely on in perhaps the ways we have done in our world. You know, we're living in a circumstance where you know, the, the chances and the likelihood of whatever has been stable for us, whatever we've relied on, is, is increasingly becoming unstable. So it's frightening, it's, uh, it's difficult. Uh, you know, Ajahn Chah would always say that if we look for certainty in the uncertain, then we're bound to suffer. We've, we've, we have uh, created a culture and society where we've really tried to create certainty, and yet reality is uncertain. You know, whether it's the reality of our life, or our relationships, or our economic status, or our work, or, or even our moods. But, you know, that's one thing. But to even begin to take on board the instability of the elements that we're now experiencing. That's a whole nother realm. That's a whole nother heightened intensity. So it means we have to really take this seriously in terms of our practice, to really take seriously and realize it's important that we use this time well, these times that we have to gather, uh, to sow the seeds through this moment by moment simple, simple practice that will support well-being. So whatever arises, it can we can have we can meet it. There's a, a a poem you must know it called the Guest House by Rumi. So this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, some meanness, a dark thought, some anxiety. I remember the line exactly, but you get my drift. Meet them at the door laughing. Well, you know it's not always easy to laugh. <laughs> At uh, what we meet, what we might meet, and what we are meeting, it's not easy. But 
this is an aspect of the practice to to know that actually in, it, whatever is arising there's still this dimension that we can awaken to that is okay or as one of our our teachers from Sri Lanka Godwin Sumarratna I find difficult to pronounce the Godwin Sumarratna which says okay even when it's not okay it's not okay it's not okay but we can be okay because we know how to return even within this heart, this unified heart. It's, it's blissful. It's the place that the Buddha said that is more pleasurable than any sense pleasure. This practice is, gives, sows the seeds for, for profound joy, gathered mind and heart, focused, absorbed, connected, rooted, steadied, is a very pleasant abiding, it's a very healing abiding. So it's worth uh, cultivating and it's also an abiding that helps to strengthen us so that gathered mind that's, that's um, infused uh, with steadiness, with this practice, when that is turned to whatever it's turned to, whatever touches us, then it's a very different experience than when we're touched by fear or dread and then we just get overwhelmed and washed away and reactive. So it's not easy. This isn't an easy practice. In fact, another great Thai meditation master is considered a great master of samadhi, Ajahn um, Lee, Damodara, would say he made an analogy, he said this path where this path of awakening said it's a bit like you're building a bridge from one shore to another. It's just an analogy. I mean in some ways the shore that we're on and the shore that we're going to is always here. But it's just an analogy that we're moving. This path is a movement. It's a movement, it's a transformative process from a place of suffering and constriction and reactivity and stress uh, into uh, transform into gatheredness, wise reflection, engaging whatever's presenting itself rather than being caught in a, react- a reactive experience. So this is so like building a bridge from one shore to another and that bridge has to have supports. You build a support on the near bank and on the far bank and those supports you can plunge down into the earth you can see the earth you can plunge those supports but then that middle support you've got to plunge it down through a fast flowing river that's difficult to do I mean I'm not an engineer but I can imagine that would be more complicated and so in the same way this path this transformative path that we're practicing the near bank is the cultivation of ethics sila refuge, all of these wholesome qualities. And then that far bank is the wisdom aspect, that which can wisely reflect and notice things are changing. Notice it's like this in this moment. What is my relationship to how it is? Can adjust, can uh, apply inquiry. But that and those, he said, in some ways those are accessible to us and in some ways easier, perhaps that's maybe 
relatively so, but the middle pillar, you made the analogy to this practice of samadhi, of gatherings, that is in a way it's more patient and challenging work because of the fickle nature of the mind, it's always slipping away because of the momentum of our patterns. It says the, the, the patterns and the habits are so powerful that when we sit here, we just feel the momentum of that. Just always pulling, the mind's always, it's like the asava, it's always flooding out uh, into our thinking, into our stories, into our distractions, into our wanting not to be here, into our wanting to be somewhere else, whatever it is. And so plunging and encouraging and returning again and again to the very simple practice of moments of just being here with something that seems to be pretty boring perhaps at first, like one breath, that is challenging. That is not an easy thing to do, to, to sink that middle pillar. So this is what we're doing today. This is what we're gathering. But it is a very vital pillar because when that is, when that samadhi, when that gatheredness starts to really strengthen and become a strong base for our practice, then it gives us a lot of capacity. This capacity is supporting this samadhi practice uh, helps us to begin to discern between the activity of the mind and that which is just aware. We've all today experienced a lot of activity, a lot of different feelings, and often different body states, a lot of different moods, and yet there is that which is aware, which is present to the experience. It's illuminating the experience, actually. We know the experience without this fundamental awareness, fundamental knowingness. So to be able to discern that and to gather, gather the body through the mindfulness of the breath into the awareness, to gather the feeling tones of the heart, however disparate, however tinged they might be sometimes with pain, to gather those into the awareness, to gather this mental activity into the awareness, to suffuse the awareness through these, bo- these bodies of energy bodies and bodies, physical body, mind, body, heart. So this samadhi is supported by many different factors, but one very helpful uh, Dharma principle, not only for supporting this practice, but also as we talk about how to practice for the times we're in. And the increasing destabilization of the elements due to climate change, due to increased destabilization that that's creating uh, with all the effects that it's creating of um, undermining stability and generating migration beginning to create conflict resource conflict wars uh, beginning to create unpredictable and increased weather patterns acidic acidification of the oceans, diminishing of uh, food availability, all of these things are beginning to become the world that we're moving into. So how can we meet this? And so one of the Dharma principles that's very important for us in these times and in our practice, both supporting this moment-by-moment cultivation of attention and for a training to meet 
our lives, whatever our lives are, the bigger context of what's happening globally and then our personal lives, our community lives, is this principle of what's called in uh, Buddhism, the word is nekama, which means to simplify, it means to renounce, it means to know how to let go, how to put down. This is a, this rather than, sometimes we can think that sounds like a bit of a drag to renounce things, to say no to things, but actually in some ways it's saying, when you say no, it's saying yes, it's saying yes to, there's enough here, there's enough, to know what is enough is actually a very powerful place to be in. To be free from the the conditioning of ever consuming, ever wanting, ever grasping, which leaves us in a weakened, disparate place. It's not our natural state, in fact. Yes, we have desire and so on, needs, but to be always activated into needing more and more and more as an addictive pattern is not natural, it's not our natural health and sanity. So to, to simplify is to know we can return to our natural health, our inner capacity for well-being. So this works in both very subtle ways, to inwardly be willing to just like, even the moment of training your mind, Train your attention to come to a breath is a moment for enunciation. <laughs> Good mind. No, I want to think about this. <laughs> I really want to, th- it's really important that I kind of chew over that resentment a bit more. <laughs> what they did, you know. So, <laughs> so when you say, just put that down, it's a renunciation of ill will, or renunciation of having to get right or get back, or a renunciation of the distracted, fantasizing mind. So even on that subtle level, it's a, it's a strength that we're building um, to, to, to realize that actually in the fruit of that can become quite tangible in a retreat experience because then we start to actually connect with more contentment. We realize that something we've just overlooked, the boring breath, another meal, oh, another tree out there, can actually become a source of great fulfillment. You sometimes see yogis just staring at the trees and, you know, or, or really enjoying their food because, you know, the, the, as there's a simplification, there's a sort of a heightening of the senses, an appreciation for what is. One breath can be so fulfilling for us. But this is a training because not usually how the mind works. Or... On a, or in our life to practice, what uh, can we uh, give away? What can we, all the stuff, we have so much stuff. <laughs> what can we let go of? And can we kind of trim down, trim down. I, I feel like I'm in a constant losing battle trying to trim things down. Because stuff just accumulates, you know, something you find, I just, at our hermitage in South Africa, I just spent, I spent a few months cleaning out our place. There was not actually a lot in there but it's still enough stuff. And sort of packed it all up, and some, f- some to the recycling, some to the dump, some to pass on. And then I notice it still seems to accumulate. So it's a real practice to just keep... There's something about just being able to not be stuck to stuff. <laughs> you know, to be able to be that fluid. You know, if we needed to leave our stuff, could we just leave it? 
So this is something we can contemplate, and we can practice it, and we can contemplate it. You know, just so that there's that sharpness and and uh, um, aliveness of not having to hold so much in our minds and physically, and to realize we can live quite simply. This is one of the encouragements of the Buddha. It's one of the lifestyle he demonstrated in his life to live very simply in a, in harmony with nature. To let go, this is what our teacher, Ajahn Chah, would always talk about, to practice with a mind that lets go, even when we're sitting here, rather than practice with a mind that's trying to attain something. said that, um, regardless of time and place, the whole practice of the Dharma comes to completion at the place where there is nothing. It is the place of surrender, of emptiness, of laying down the burden. This is the finish. This is the finish. Coming to this place. Actually, this is our reality. All of the other stuff is, is, is arbitrary in a way. The reality in the moment is the place of nothingness. It's the place of emptying. So when we come back to our one breath in this moment, we're really coming back to an emptying. We're coming back to this simplification, this letting go, this renouncing. And that's why in some ways it's quite hard because we want to fill ourselves up with stuff. Our thoughts and our feelings and our stories and our possessions and our roles and what we've got to do you know, but it's uh, but it's also a great relief to realize, and this is what I'd like to encourage us, and I'm encouraging myself as well in this practice, because it is a practice that's ongoing. One doesn't just sort of somehow snap out of one's habits, mostly, for most of us. It's an ongoing practice to explore this willingness to enter into this place of nakedness, really the naked moment, the naked moment of awareness, of our presence, our truth, you know, behind all the layers and the patternings of the self, getting somewhere, fearing things, upset about things. So this being able to, as Ajahn Chah, surrender, to open into that inner uh, emptying, It's a place of trust. We then are entering into this dimension that we're awakening into, this profound, alive, aware intelligence of the presence, of the knowing of the heart. We're awakening into that. And then when we listen into that, this is the place of the shift of consciousness. This is the place where we're listening together. I'm listening to that place. I'm listening inwardly stripping away all of the layers of my stuff into the nakedness of my heart, the awareness here and now. You're listening. We're listening together. The world is listening. The earth is listening. And it's from this place that uh, response can emerge, a different kind of response maybe. A response that's, still, that's not splitting the world up into 10,000 things, you, you know, and creating more aversion.
So my friend that I um, practice with, when she uh, lost her child, the child died as a baby, and when I asked her um, years later, you know, how was it for her now? You know, how was she now with that, you know, very life-transforming experience of loss? How was it for her? How was she coping? And she said, you know, when I, when I think about my baby, I feel this tremendous grief. Of course, one would. I feel that anguish of loss. But when I, she's a practitioner, when I return to my listening heart, to this place, this gathered refuge, this awareness, my child is listening there too. It's it's the place where we meet. It's where we hear a deeper intelligence, where we hear the place where all things, as Ajahn Chah said, where they finish. And it's the place of true response. Whatever that response may be, I don't know how we will respond, how you will respond, how I will respond in the times we're in. That's for us to explore many different kinds of response, whether it's to sit on a mountaintop spreading metta, whether it's to scream at the gates of the White House. (laughs) Whatever it is, this is our response. But can we do it from this heart, from this listening, from this resourcefulness? Can we do it at the door that can laugh, welcoming whatever is here rather than freaking out? Can we do it from a place that contributes to healing rather than continues to split? This is a challenge. Or the heart that demonstrated by Hong Song Suji or Mr. Mandela. So whatever, we don't know. We don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know. Some people say, you know, this sort of time we're in, it's like an excruciation. It's like a crucifixion. Maybe it's a, a bringing forth a new birth. Maybe that's the picture. A new kind of evolved something. I hope, love that. But maybe not. Maybe it's a great sixth extinction, who knows. We don't know, it's in the cusp. We're on the cusp. But what we can know, what we can do is to turn very, very simply to this breath and know that we're planting the seeds of our capacity to maintain our sanity, our well-being, our strength, our refuge, our resiliency. And all of that will inform whatever response emerges in the conditions of what we meet. Jen Charles said that this activity of the mind, this mind world, same thing on some level, this is like a cobra. Whether it's good or bad, liked or disliked, When you grasp it, it will poison you, it will affect you. It will affect you with longing and desire or with aversion and resistance. So you must know this mind, you must know this activity of the mind. And whatever it is, whether it's good or whether it's not good, to watch it arise and pass. And then when you can do that, you will know, you will know peace, you will know the peace that remains. And this peace you can rely on. This peace, this peace of our heart is present here, 
can be with whatever's unfolding, this peace we can rely on, whatever arises, whatever we meet, whatever responses are taken, we know how to return to this deeper peace. And this is our practice. This is why we do, as Ajahn Chah said, this difficult practice to prepare little by little, to plant the seeds, moment by moment, each moment we return to the breath, we plant the seeds of our sanity, of our well-being, of our capacity. We plant the seeds of our awakening. We plant the seeds of our ability to be here together, listening within the times that we're in and cultivating from that listening the optimum response that each of us can make. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.